Good morning, church. Jacob, you always have been a big old crybaby. 20 years as friends, I've seen it a lot. It gets old. But we have been friends for 20 years. As a matter of fact, it was the fall of 2003 when I started Mid-America, and you were a year into Mid-America, and I moved into the apartments across from where he and Kelly were living without children at the time. We became quick friends because we would harbor him as a fugitive when he was in trouble with Kelly, and he would stay in our, in our room. We got our master's degree together. He finished a little bit before me. We got our doctorate together. He finished a little bit before me. We've been overseas evangelizing together, door-to-door, house-to-house. We've suffered hardship together. We've prayed for each other through crisis, infirmity, and heartache. We lived as neighbors, which I said a moment ago. We played church softball together, and you know that's real Christian ministry. We attended the same church even for a season. That hasn't happened much in our lives, but it did for a season. We played in a music band together named Hill Side Worship Band. Anyone heard of it? No? <laughs> we're not 24-7, okay, I get that, but we're, uh, we were something. Every year we go backpack together, he said that, but something he didn't tell you is that whenever you're a backpacker, it's customary that a backpacker receives a trail name. Now, trail names are unique because they are names that find you. You don't determine for yourself what your trail name is going to be. They're just given to you. Now, sometimes they come to you by way of something kind of embarrassing or unfortunate. Jacob's trail name just happens to be Shortcut. It's a name that I take great pride in because I bequeathed it to him. Because Jacob has a problem with staying in the woods on a backpacking trip. Somehow he missed the memo that the point of going into the woods is to be there and to enjoy the woods, to set up camp, to have coffee, to make your meals, to fight off bear, which we did last time. All of these great things, but his constant desire is to get out of the woods as soon as he gets in. Please help this man understand what backpacking is really all about. And feel free to call him shortcut all around town. We've gone over, we've gone to pastor's conferences, we've, we've done that for over a decade. I'm going to one tomorrow, which he was not able to go this year, but he was most certainly invited to do that. I've been a reference for him on his resume a number of times. I was a reference whenever this church called him. So I'd like to take this opportunity now to publicly say you're welcome, Jacob, uh, for my contribution, my single contribution, that is the reason probably that you're here today. I had a great conversation with someone who called me, and I told stories about all the great things that that Jacob would bring to this church. Jacob, so all of this, all of this love, all of this appreciation that you have, you're welcome. We've written curriculum together. We put on our own camps together. We were both youth pastors. As as a matter of fact, as youth pastors do, we shot balls of Crisco out out of water balloon slingshot at about 150 miles an hour at students. I'm not saying he's encouraging Cliff to do the same. I'm just saying that's what we did. So it's one of those do as we say, not as we do scenarios. I won't tell you, I'll let him tell you about the time that I beat him in ping pong and I had to rebuke him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because of the fit that he pitched after losing. I'll let him tell you about my undefeated record in home run derby, which is no small feat when we played home run derby all the time 
during seminary. I won't tell you about that. I'll let him tell you about that. Basically letting him tell you what a dominant force I am on the field and how that's where his crying problems began. <laughs> We've watched each other go from zero children to about 137 children. We've competed against each other in all things, and Jacob has lost in most of those things. Now, he says that I'm lying about things, but I'm not. I've simply waited 20 years to be able to stand in a pulpit at a church that you're pastoring and roast you just a little bit, and here it is. It may never happen again, but here it is. Jacob has been a constant friend of me for two decades now. He's had more influence for good in my life than most any other friend that I've had. That says a lot because I'm a great guy. I have a lot of friends. He has two, Kelly and myself. While he is quick with a joke, he has been a constant source of encouragement for me as a minister of this glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jacob has often been the singular embodiment of what it means to bear one another's burdens because he has taken on a lot of my burdens. And I would like to think, at least in prayer and maybe encouragement, I've taken on some of his. And so that's a perfect segue into what I want to talk about this morning for the next little bit of time that we have. I want to talk about the mandate the imperative that's given to us, not just once, but multiple times in the scriptures, but specifically looking at one place that the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, in, Galatia chapter, in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 specifically, and I'll, I'll build up a context before that, but that's where we'll be looking at what it is to bear one another's burdens. And this comes from a, a shepherd's heart, a pastor's heart. I pastor a church that's much smaller than this, but the demand is the same. We have infirmities, we have sin hang-ups, we have life problems, and we have to bear one another's burdens. So as a pastor, longing for that, desiring that, and then being able to see that and witness the church body actually turning inwardly towards one another and taking up the yoke of each other's struggles is a wonderful thing to be a part of. It's a daunting thing, it's trench work ministry, but it's what the local church is called to do. So if you will, you can turn to the book of Galatians chapter 6. So by way of sharing context, let me just build this up for you. Obviously, Paul's writing to this new church, and he's giving them some vital instructions. Paul does that. He's, he, does, he does that well. But in this particular instance, he's holding up this contrast that is walking according to the flesh, which is bad, and walking according to the Spirit, which is what God desires for us. That's his standard. Church, you walk according to the Spirit not according to the flesh. So he offers this exhortation to the church in Galatians chapter 5. He says, walk according to the Spirit. And then he lists for us the fruits of the Spirit so that they can know. You're to walk in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, all of these things. This is to be the markings of who you are as a follower of Jesus Christ. This is a part of your gospel identity. The way that you love one another, the way that you show patience for one another, the way that you bear one another's burdens. And he moves into chapter 6. He moved in, into what we understand is chapter 6 of his letter. And he starts to discuss this sin issue. Maybe he's creating this hypothetical. And it says this. So read with me, if you will, in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1. Brothers and sisters, he says, if a person is caught in any wrongdoing, any kind of sinful stronghold or holdup, he says, you who are spiritual are to restore such a person in the spirit 
of gentleness. But he offers this exhortation as well, right behind that exhortation. He says, each one looking to yourself so that you're not tempted as well. And then he says something, and I want you to hear this. This is the imperative. Bear one another's burdens. And in doing so, or thereby, you might fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. This is, to say the least, a daunting task. I believe this text has both a direct application and an indirect application. The direct application is dealing with the burden of sin. The indirect application, and I'm saying that because of the the whole of Scripture that is filled with one anothering language. It should come as no surprise to any of us that the expectation is that we turn inwardly towards one another and we live to look out for the best interests of one another, Philippians chapter 2. So this is what Paul's telling them to do. This is a very difficult thing. It's not lost on him. I believe the application is the burdens of sin. I believe the indirect application being the burdens of life. So here's my objective, to show the relationship between loving one another and loving one another rightly and bearing one another's burdens. Because to bear one another's burdens is to love one another as you're supposed to love one another. But to do so, we have to kind of have an understanding of what this means. This idea of bearing one another's burdens. So Paul says, bear one another's burdens. Bear this idea of carrying something or enduring. There's this endurance as a connotation behind this word. So it's not a stop by and this quick quick exchange. It's you prepare yourself to plant your feet shoulder to shoulder in the life of someone who's shouldering this burden, in this case, the burden of sin. Whatever that sin might be, the expectation is clear. You're to be ready to endure this burden. Now, the idea, this this word burden, it has a connotation of uh, something of eternal weight and value and significance. So these are major imperatives that we're given. We're told to be about the business of shouldering together and journeying with someone in order to see them go from bondage to freedom. Now, we're talking about a local church context, so we're talking about those who are in our Christian community, those who are in a local church context. None of us are without our sin burden. None of us are without our life burdens. And both apply here that we're supposed to turn in towards one another, shoulder together, and then work towards freedom. How do we bear someone's sin burden? You're not Jesus. You know, last time I checked, it was Jesus, who knew no sin and became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not you, not me. So it clearly doesn't mean that. There's one God-man, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he's not me, and he's not you. So how do you carry or endure someone's burden? Well, he answers it right here. He says, brothers and sisters, if a person is caught in any wrongdoing, you do what? Those who are spiritual, restore them. This is not about witch hunts. This is not about pitchforks and fire sticks. This is about recognizing an issue, not turning a blind eye towards a sin problem. A lot of people do. Why? Because it's messy. This is the trench work of church ministry. We're good about meal trains. We're great about helping people move from point A to point B. We're great at those kind of things, but sometimes when it takes more of the heart work, more of the mud, more of the blood, and all of these kind of things, and dare I say the tears, Maybe it's a little easier to step back because that's real trench work in ministry. And I see it all the time in our small little church. We see it all the time. 
And I'm always brought back to this text about what it means to bear someone's burden. We're to work to restore them. This doesn't mean that you become a sinner with them. It doesn't mean that you take on their sin. It just means that you take upon yourself the yoke of their struggle and you help them journey from slavery to freedom. Now, this is often done through different procedures. This is often done through different systems that are put in place, using your creativity, using the collective gifts of the church, whether it be the gift of compassion, whether it be patience, whatever it is, these are the people, the spiritual people, the people who are exemplifying the fruits of the Spirit will come along and say, let me with gentleness, with humility, with meekness, let me help you journey from here. I'm not trying to to pin you to a wall. We're not trying to crucify you. We want you to find freedom. We want you to be whole. Because you have skin in the game as well. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? So when we turn a blind eye, we're not just acting in an unbecoming fashion towards our fellow believer who we're mandated to love in the local church, but you're putting everyone else in this local body at risk as well. Whether it's pornography, gossip, alcoholism, apathy, neglectful husbands, usurping wives, in all of these cases, the church's responsibility is the same. Restore them. Do what's necessary to bring them from bondage to freedom. That's how it applies to the burden of sin. But it also applies to the burden of life. We're all familiar with the burden of sin, but we're also familiar with the burdens of life. The burdens of life. Are you a parent in this room? Most of you are. You understand that that is a burden to a degree. I'm not saying children are bad. Children are a gift from the Lord. But I mean burden as a responsibility. Some of these burdens are non-transferable, right? I'm not going to give my kids to someone else and say, you be their parent because this is a burden. What I mean by that is we have a responsibility to our children. As a husband, I have the burden of headship. I have the burden of leading my wife. Is it some bad thing? No, it's an awesome thing. It's a, it's a God-given thing, but it's something that requires much of me. It's a tall order that's given to me and it's given to you men in this room. So that's what I mean by burden in one sense. But there are other types of burdens. Someone falls into some financial problems. Maybe they've made bad financial decisions. And maybe you have someone in your church that's more financially savvy than the person who's made bad financial decisions. So the person that's more gifted with financial savviness comes in and says, let me help you. Maybe that's creating a budget. Maybe that's working with them on better decision making, better spending habits. And you move them from that burden of life to more freedom in that arena or aspect of their life. I'm wanting this sermon to be very practical and very helpful because this is my heart for the local church. Because I think sometimes we become so outwardly focused. And this is great, right? We want to be focused on the nations. We want to be focused on the world. We have to be focused on one another as well. This is our command. We can't leave people in the trenches and in the crack. How can you be as effective out there when you're falling apart in here? To endure with those carrying heavy burdens of life looks like the body of Christ using their collective gifts to help each other through to the other side. And this is a beautiful thing. Helping widows and shut-ins, helping the single mother shuttle her kids around because she's got a job and she's trying to make ends meet. Sending someone who is, I, I talked about the financial, the financial illustration, meal trains, uh, providing rides, making visits, praying, all of these are ways that you can help to bear one another's burdens. Martin Luther writes this about this very thing. He says, Christians must have strong shoulders and mighty bones that they might bear the weaknesses of their brethren. Everybody gets it. 
it's difficult. <laughs> it's difficult. But no one wants to be a burden to someone else. Have you ever heard that before? It's not without its effect. Certain burdens have a way of resting on our minds. This is the effect of the mind. When you lock yourself in with someone's burden, when you say, okay, the scripture says I'm going to do this, when you shoulder that burden, when you take that yoke of struggle and you put it on yourself, necessarily making the burden heavier for yourself, but at the same, same time making it lighter for them so that you might be able to set them up for success. We take on this kind of burden, and it has a mental effect. I mean, your mind's on it. You're thinking. You're trying to process. You're trying to, uh, you're trying to figure out how, how can we best help these people. Maybe there's a little brain trust that's put together, and you say, okay, how can we, how can we tackle this? I'm so thankful for our, our other elder, Austin Jowers, who also knows Jacob very well. And sometimes when something comes up in our church, we come together. I'm like, look, we got to think through this. we got to figure out how we're going to tackle this, whether it was a church discipline situation or whether it's a situation we have coming up that might be a life burden and not a sin burden. And we try to think through that. But it's taxing on the mind. When people in our church go through some struggles, there have been a crisis of faith. There have been all kinds of things that I've seen in our small little church over the last couple of years. And if my wife was here, she could tell you about many nights that I just didn't sleep. Because it's on my mind. It's on his mind. He, he shoulders a lot of burden. And someone might think it's benign. Someone might think, oh, nobody's noticing, nobody worries about me. Some small infirmity in your life, whether it's physical, whether it's spiritual, your pastor labors over it. He thinks on it. He prays on it. He's asking God for guidance. He's asking the Lord for wisdom. So it has an effect on the mind, but not only that, it has an effect on the body. The reality is that bearing one another's burdens is stress-inducing. I mean, again, the non-transferable burden of being a husband is stressful. Not because my wife's bad, not because she's difficult, because I am. <laughs> right? Right? And so, it's tough. It's stressful. But what about all these other potential burdens? Because everybody has them. There's those who admit it and those who lie about it, right? Everybody has their burdens, whether it's sin burden or life burden. It's just what it is to be human. It's what it is to be broken. And when you, again, line up yourself with someone's life and you say, I'm going I'm to share that yoke and I'm going to journey with you, it's a stress on the mind. It's a stress on the body. It has an effect. It has an effect on the soul as well. This is why Paul offers this exhortation here. He says, I want you to help these people. I want you to restore them in gentleness, but don't forget this. Keep watch over yourself. Is he saying be selfish? No, no. He's saying be guarded, lest you fall into temptation. Especially when you're dealing with the burden of sin. Depending on what that is. And you take a specific interest. This isn't about being a busybody. This isn't about being a gossip. This is about looking out for one another's best interest. This is not about finding out the, the, the latest, juiciest gossip on someone so that you can go and be the town herald and tell everybody all their business. I lived in a small town for seven years. I know what it's like for everybody to know everybody's business, right? I get it. I get it. But this is not the idea here. This is the idea of I want to know what I can so that I can help you so that we can journey from bondage to freedom together. But you have to guard yourself. You guard yourself from two things primarily. One is that you don't fall into the same sinful trap, the same temptation, but also that you don't grow tempted to be weary of doing good. We're to be about the business of doing good 
thing. Stir one another up to love and good works. But it's an effect on the soul. And then it's an effect on the emotion. Burden-bearing demands that just burden-bearing demands not just a thick skin, but a high threshold for pain. A high threshold for pain. This burden that you bear for someone, it might be a sprint or it might be a marathon. I'm all for meal trains. I'm an eater. I like them. I I don't care how long the train is. One cart or a hundred. Keep the food coming. I've got a freezer. I love it. But you understand, where that has its place, that's fairly easy for us. It's fairly easy. We have a set of friends who we've known for about 17 years now. And even as of yesterday, they're both addicts, both born again. But in the last 10 years of our 17-year friendship, they've had some serious marital struggles that are linked to relapses. So it's been a 17-year journey with them. That's 17 years of burden-bearing. And it comes with tremendous letdown, heartache, frustration, anger. But sometimes it's a marathon. Who else? Who else is to link arms with them other than the church? With gentleness, with meekness, restore them. That's your job. That's my job. It's not the job of Narcotics Anonymous to restore them to a right relationship with our local church and with the Lord their God. Those places have their place. But the church is given a very clear imperative. But you know what? There are hindrances to burden bearing. There's effects to it, but there's hindrances that keep us from bearing burdens as we should. There's judgmentalism, isolationism, and self-reliance. Judgmentalism, no one wants to be judged. (laughs) No one wants to be judged. I think a lot of times people withhold their information, they withhold their struggle, whether it be a a life burden, because why? They don't want to be a burden to someone else. Whether it's a sin burden or a life burden. You know, we have a a family in our church that uh, the the, the poor, they're a young family, young millennial age type family, and the the, the wife has lost both of her parents. She has the dad that's kind of been the primary dad in her life, just suffered a, a severe stroke, I think a series of strokes. She just had a baby. They're selling their house. It's a hot mess. It is, it is a whirlwind, and they're very young, just trying to navigate this. Most people that are in their mid-20s aren't having to have their ailing father live at home with them and them take care of them. That's not something that a lot of 25-year-olds experience, but they are. But they are. And so they could have this approach of, I don't want to burden somebody with my problems, And that would be a great detriment to themselves and to the church. But judgmentalism is a major hindrance. Worrying about what others will think. Worrying about what others will say. Worrying that other people will judge you. And think that you're just this awful, horrible person. When in reality, if we all stood in a circle and God read our mail out loud, we'd find out some pretty devastating things about one another. Because we're all broken. We're all broken. There's no place for judgmentalism in the body of Christ. Isolationism. Burden-bearing presupposes a corporateness. The church cannot function properly or grow 
in the way that she's meant to grow if the body refuses to be present mentally, spiritually, and physically. You can't, bur- you can't bear someone's burden when they're not re- willing to be a burden lender. You can't bear someone's burden when they're isolated, when they remove themselves. Some people take their burdens and they keep others away at arm's reach because of their own shame or their own pride. This presents two problems. The burden lender is isolated to the degree that you don't even know they're struggling. You don't even know they're struggling. They're so isolated. Maybe they're isolated, uh, not physically, that happens, but maybe they're just hiding it. Maybe they're isolating themselves in a way that they put on a face, which we're all good at doing, but they don't want you to see what's really happening. They don't want you to see the sin struggle. They don't want you to see the life struggle. They don't want you to see the inner turmoil. And so that's one problem that isolationism presents with regards to burden bearing. The other problem is that the burden lender is so isolated that you cannot reach them to help them even when you do know their burden. This is when someone takes themselves completely out of the equation. And we all know those types. Maybe it's their shame, guilt, or pride. And rather than saying, help me, they isolate. And sometimes they isolate so far that you try to text, you try to call, you try to visit and you get crickets. And it's a dangerous, dangerous thing. And then there's self-reliance. Again, how many times have you ever heard this sentiment? I don't want to be a burden to anyone. Well, guess what? That's your job. (laughs) And it's our job to bear it. I get it. I get the sentiment, but that sentiment undermines the purpose of the covenanting relationships within the body of Christ. Christ is just so smart enough to know that you need one another. And although he is our ultimate burden bearer, we are still given the directive and the imperative that you are to bear one another's burdens. You can't atone for each other's sin, but you can help each other find freedom from the strongholds that entangle them. The Bible is not short of language when it comes to one another. And for time's sake, I won't read them, but a few. Serve one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Live in harmony with one another. Instruct one another. Spur one another on to love and good works. And so many more. There's a pattern and a theme here. And that pattern and theme, it tends to lead us to the, to the, to the realization that what the Bible's pointing to is not self-reliance, but reliance on one another so that we might bear one another's burdens. The burden bearer has a responsibility, a heart that is concerned for the best interests of others, Philippians 2, a perspective that placed a premium on the local church. The burden bearer requires a willingness to take on burdens. Make up your mind today that you're going to be obedient to the scriptures and that you'll seek out people. You'll try to find out where they're hurting, where their hardships are, so that you can help if you can. And then it requires an attentiveness to the burdens of others. Again, this is not being nosy or a busybody, but how else do you know what their burdens are? Unless you pay attention. Unless you make it your business to take an interest into their well-being. But then there's the responsibility of the burden lender. This requires trust in others. That's not easy. It requires vulnerability, right? It's hard to be vulnerable. I'm sure you have small groups, Sunday school class, whatever you're calling those things, Right? And you get in those classes, and if you think to yourself, I've got this sin, I've got this struggle, I've got this stronghold that I'm so ashamed of saying, 
I don't want to be judged. And maybe you get past that. You're like, I don't want to be an isolationist. So maybe you get past that. You don't want to rely on yourself. So you're brought to kind of this wits end type moment to where you're like, I've got to trust these people. I've got to be vulnerable and share with them something that I don't want, I don't want anybody to know, but I'm at my wits end and I need it. And you have to be honest about it. And that's hard. That's very difficult. And I would make the generalization and say that we don't see it that often. I think people speak in generalities and unspokens, but to say, I'm a porn addict, I can't control my lust, I'm a ravenous gossip, I neglect my wife, I have eyes for another woman, I have eyes for another man. When you rely on yourself and you become an isolationist, you destroy yourself and you devastate the church. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And finally, there's an effect. There's a hindrance, but there's the imperative. Again, Paul says to restore one another in gentleness. Look out for yourself so that you not fall in temptation. And he says, bear one another's burdens, thereby fulfilling the law of Christ. It is a law that we bear one another's burdens. It's not a command. It's not, a, I mean, I'm sorry, it's not an encouragement. It's a command. You are to do this. It's not based on your mood. It's not based on the weather. It's not based on your convenience. It is based on the imperative of the Scriptures. You are to bear one another's burdens. This can just as easily be called the imperative of love. The law of Christ is the law of love. We're told to love the world around us, we're told to love our neighbor as ourselves. but we're told to love one another. Jesus spoke to his disciples and says, this is how the world will know that you belong to me, by the way you do what? Love one another. You want the world to know that there's something different about you that's not wrapped up in columns outside of the church building, that's not wrapped up in the songs that you sing, it's the way that you love one another. And then loving one another goes all the way to burden bearing and not just meal trains and Wednesday night prayer. Those things are great. Those things are awesome. But there's so much more that comes to bearing burdens. Remember when Jesus was questioned by the lawyer in Matthew 22. and He said, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. Jesus said, if you really want to know what keeping the law and the prophets looks like, love one another. Love. I mean, the language is strong. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he talks about all these gifts. If you speak in tongues and prophecies and all these things, that's awesome. But guess what? If you do not have love, he says, you are nothing. He didn't say you have nothing. He said you are nothing. Because at its root, being a follower of Christ, in large part, has to do with the way you love one another. Because that sums up the nature of Christ's accomplishment. Love encapsulates all that Christ did through his gospel. It sums up his teachings. And it is the heart of his command, bear one another's burdens. And I'll finish with this thought. Jesus is, of course, our ultimate example of love through burden bearing. Jacob mentioned it. A moment ago, and when he introduced me, and as he prayed about Jesus becoming our 
burden bearer. He took on our sin, who knew no sin, becoming sin on our behalf. He took on the wrath of God. God dispensed his wrath onto Jesus. And in a few hours, the God-man absorbed that wrath by propitiating himself. Propitiating himself. You hear this every Sunday, most likely, but it should never get old. He substituted himself. He absorbed the wrath of God, God's holy hatred for all time. He dispensed on Christ, and Christ took it. And he didn't just take it. He satisfied the wrath of God. He satisfied it. God had no more wrath for the saints. God had no more wrath for believers. It was quenched. It was met. It was satisfied in the God-man. Him becoming our ultimate burden-bearer. One of Jesus' last times with his disciples in John 13, what we know as the, the Last Supper, Jesus said, little children, I'm still with you a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I said to the Jews, also I say to you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. I'm giving you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And he said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You want to keep the law of Christ? You want to keep the entire law and the prophets? You want to honor all those things with all the questions about what are the law of prophets? What, what do we do with the Old Testament? What do we do with the law? What do we do with these things? You want the answer? Love one another. And love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Those are just Jesus' words. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I'm going to pray and then your pastor is going to come up and lead us in our closing time of invitation. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that the heart of your word has been acknowledged today. Lord, I do believe that this text applies in those two ways, to the burdens of sin directly and to the burdens of life. I do believe that we can walk, walk away from this text and feel that there is a very clear command to us that we're to be about the business of other people's business in all the right ways. Lord, give us strength, give us grace, give us poise, give us the wherewithal that we need, give us obedience, give us the interest and the care and the concern and love enough to not just identify, not just dig in and find what someone's struggle might be, but, but to have the courage and enough love to confront and deal with it. I pray for the burden lender. I pray that you would cause them to have trust, to have honesty and vulnerability. Lord, I pray that the rapport that is built and has been built in this church, in this local body over the years, Lord, would, would give no cause for question as to whether or not the burden lender is going to be judged. I pray that the burden lender would not go into isolation or self-reliance, but they would realize that we're made for one another that we need one another, and they might find that tremendous grace and love in one anothering here in this local body. I pray that you would connect these truths to our lives and cause these truths to give birth to action from us, and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.